Hi, everybody. This is the Run Your Life podcast, and I'm host Andy Vasley. Before beginning today's podcast, I want to have you all, wherever you are, reflect on the theme of human potential and maybe think about human potential as it relates to your own life in regards to some of your personal and professional accomplishments. So personally, maybe it was running an ultra marathon or a marathon or a 10K race and preparing for it or publishing your first book, whatever it is. Professionally, perhaps it's uh, being promoted into a new leadership role or uh, experiencing several promotions over the last few years. But when you think about human potential in your own life, what comes up for you? And if we were to explore the idea of human potential in general, we can look at it through the lens of being an innate ability of every person to live and perform in alignment with their highest self. And definitely when we think of human potential or striving to reach our full potential, it definitely requires a combination of both outer and inner work. For thousands of years, humans have had the capacity to consistently improve themselves through studying, training, and practice in order to reach the limit of their ability and with that develop new aptitudes and skills. And inherent within the notion of human potential is the belief that in reaching our full potential as individuals, we will lead happier, more fulfilled lives. And with that in mind, I want to share a quote from Maya Angelou. And what she said was, One isn't necessarily born with courage, but one is born with potential. But we definitely need courage in order to access our potential. She goes on to say that we cannot practice any other virtue with consistency if we do not have courage. She says that we can't be kind, true, merciful, generous, or honest. And the Dalai Lama once said that with realization of one's own potential and self-confidence in one's ability, one can build a better world. That's what this podcast series is about. Uh, it's about looking at the theme of human potential. And when we strive to be the best version of ourselves possible, how we can make a difference in our own world around us and the world in general. Over the next several episodes, I will be sharing interviews with some extraordinary people that have made a huge impact in the world through their work by pushing themselves to the edge of their capacity and beyond. Many of my listeners know that I live and work at KAUST, the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, which is based in Saudi Arabia. KAUST is truly an amazing institution of excellence whose mission is deeply focused on aspiring to be a destination for scientific and technological education and research. And by inspiring discoveries to address global challenges, KAUST hopes to be a beacon for peace, hope, and reconciliation in order to not only serve the people of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but also the world in general. During the month of January, KAUST hosted their annual Winter Enrichment Program, which is a phenomenal conference that brings amazing people here from different parts of the world to share their work. 
And I want to share with you what the mission of the Winter in Richmond Program 2023 was all about. The mission of the program was to look at knowledge transformation through the lens of the edge, which is the cusp of discovery, where the bold take risks to push frontiers in order to expand understanding and to change the world through research. EDGE will seek out the risk takers across a broad spectrum, not just interdisciplinary science pioneers, but boundary breakers, and the policy makers that enable, and the communicators that explain the unexplainable. The theme of EDGE, go, you know, the conference goes on to say that EDGE will ask how these people went to the EDGE and beyond and how they were able to share their discovery with the world. EDGE will encourage a radical assessment of how we break the borders of understanding collectively and individually. As scientists, artists, explorers, volunteers, and humans, to understand how we ignite our individual confidence to step into the unknown and the outcomes of that transformative journey on ourselves and on the world around us. So I was lucky enough to be able to interview a number of Winter Enrichment Program keynote speakers um, during the month of January. And this interview was with the inspiring presenters Sunava Sorbi and Hildi Falamstrom. They are both courageously bold expeditioners and refer to themselves as citizen scientists who just over two years ago became the first women to live unassisted at the North Pole for what was supposed to be nine months, but due to COVID, ended up being 21 months. So imagine living in complete darkness in the North Pole for several months at a time during the winter months. I know it was a, a very intense, crazy journey for them, and they're going to share their story today. But they chose to live for two winters in total isolation on the Norwegian Arctic island of Svalbard in order to raise awareness of the massive impact climate change is having on our polar regions. In our interview, we will unpack what that journey was like for them and how they learned to deal with fear and what their biggest learning and takeaway was from that experience. It was great because we were able to do this interview face-to-face -face in the podcast studio here at Coast, and uh, I wanted to actually thank my, my friend and colleague, Jorge Rodriguez, for being the sound producer of this episode, so he was sitting in uh, while we were recording our conversation. I really do hope you find value in Sunava and Hildi's story. It's amazing, uh, very inspiring. So without further ado, let's jump right into that conversation now. And I sincerely hope you enjoy it and share it with other people who you think will benefit from listening to it. Thanks for your time.
Okay, welcome to the Run Your Life podcast and, and the web podcast series. I have two very inspiring guests with me today, uh, Hildi and Sunava. Uh, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves in a moment, but in advance to our conversation, I really want to thank you both so much for taking the time to be here. When you just arrived yesterday, jet lag, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This is our first time in uh, Saudi Arabia, and it's absolutely stunning so far. Yeah, yeah. We just before hitting record, we have Jorge Rodriguez, our sound producer, here. Um, just before hitting record, we talked about Kaust and how wild it is, like how amazing it is, the architecture and the scenery is just stunning. So uh, before I ask you to introduce yourselves, why don't you just say your first thoughts coming into the compound and and what you thought of when you saw everything? Well, I thought about uh, everything is big and beautiful, uh, not very modest, <laughs> <laughs> but really, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed, impressed by the community uh, from what I can see and also the buildings and the settlement around here. Looks and this, I mean, the campus and it's beautiful. Yeah. There's a very sweet smell in the air. I went for a walk this morning um, with the sunrise. And, you know, my first impression was really just how generous people are with their spirits here and mm. their willingness to help. And that started at the airport. Yeah. I rolled in at one o'clock in the morning and there's just no shortage of um, smiles out there. And it's, is that a cultural thing? Is, yeah, I, I think from what I, you know, we've talked about this before, but Saudi has uh, completely opened their doors. And we were in Riyadh yesterday, uh, transferring to Jeddah, and the friendliest people at the airport, and big smiles and welcome to Saudi. Then they realized we lived here for seven years, and they said, welcome home. Mm-hmm. And I said, it is home. Mm-hmm. So, Very proud people. Yeah, Saudi has opened their doors to tourism. They, they're taking it seriously, and... And what a great time for Coast to take advantage of that and really open up the doors further to what's possible in the world. So, you know, it's been an amazing seven years for my family and I, and uh, we're going to stay here a couple more years. But um, so just to set the context, and either of you can start, can you each share where you're from and anything you want the listeners to know about early life and the strengths that you developed that went on to help you so much in the work that you now do to serve the world? Hitler's looking at me, so I'll <laughs> go first. <laughs> um, my name is Sinova Sorby, and I was born in Norway, born in Tensberg, Norway. Um, and then my parents immigrated to Canada when I was a year old, uh, initially to Montreal, but I live on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and I absolutely love it there. And uh, early shapings uh, for myself are likely my parents initially. My Mm. father was a captain on an oil tanker, and my mother was uh, one of the first female wireless operators on a ship. And um, so growing up, there was a lot of, from my father, there was a lot of attention to detail around what are your goals, what are your plans. He'd go away for six months, come back, and we would have to hold ourselves accountable to a, a sheet of paper. And for so my, goal setting early on. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, measuring the goals. I mean, it was very intent on that. Wow. And for my mother, it was, I mean, she was, she was definitely working in a male-dominated world early on, mm-hmm. including in Norway as, as one of the first female investment bankers, very successfully. And I think 
maybe just visual the visual model of the two of them uh, around that, and then early on them not clipping my wings because I was not your typical teenager growing up. Mm-hmm. I like to play a lot of sports. I I didn't really like school if I had to wear a uniform, which I did at gr- private girls' school, and I'm still sorry to my teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I would want to wear my gym socks because I would want to be ready for that after. Mm-hmm. So there was a, this a mix of sort of academia, but also I needed to, uh, needed uh, to be outside a mm-hmm. lot. So that sh- that has really shaped me. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yes, my name is Hilde Folunström, and I grew up in Norway. Um, uh, three older siblings we were out in the nature a lot my parents were very active so i think i learned uh, as the norwegian expression you are born with the skis yeah. on <laughs> so i i think i could ski before i could properly walk um, and also lived off the nature as as much as we could so i think that shaped me a lot having older siblings that pushed me a lot mm-hmm. i remember always being tired physically uh, but they uh, challenged me in so many ways also my my parents they challenged me to be the best i could mm-hmm. um, and i i also were very um, engaged in all kinds of sports um, i loved skiing as i said from and i think i was a i was a little explorer like all of us are when we were born mm-hmm. and i never stopped exploring um, and i went into tourism um skiing was uh, my main uh, thing to do uh, even to all the way up to the the state of today and um i longed for something i don't know to explore more mm-hmm. i was traveling the world through my tourism uh, both education and through 25 years of tourism but i moved back in 1995 up to svalbard so that's almost 30 years ago and that has ever been my um exploration mm-hmm. up in the arctic and also seeing every single change that has happened for the yeah almost three decades so um climate change climate change mm-hmm. so being immersed by nature and being surrounded by nature and uh amongst wildlife mm-hmm. has always been the fas- fascination and me living up in Svalbard is in me in the right environment. And like Sunova, you mentioned that school uh, wasn't your thing, that you didn't really enjoy school that much, right? And was it the same for you or were you? I, yeah, I, en- I mean, I enjoyed it, obviously, yeah. I, uh, very much so. But um, I also really enjoyed being outside. Yeah, and, yeah. And that was a big part of my learning. Well, that, that's what I mean. As educators, uh, Jorge and I both, um, it's just fascinating to me that the old systems of schooling truly do not prepare people for their passions and what it is they want to do in the world. And it's like the system was broken and is still broken. And when I look at the both of you and the work that you've done and how you're striving to make such an impact in the world, um, did it have anything to do with school early on? Or was the uh, did the passions you developed just happen as a natural part of your curiosities? I have a very distinct memory in my early 20s. I, um, I, I was living in Norway. I went to the International Summer School in Norway to learn the language. Um, I took a, a course on Norwegian society um, and policy. 
And it was just a summer school. And then I ended up moving to Norway. And I bought my first apartment there because I worked at a bank. Uh, it was a, a shipping bank. And I worked, believe it or not, <laughs> as a computer programmer. I had the largest office in the entire bank. And I'm still friends with some of the girls that I worked with there. And I... I I got bored. I was just, it was an early onset boredom mm. that was very unfamiliar to me. And the feeling was, is this all there is? I was in a relationship. I had a house. I had a great job. I was in a place where family was and great friends. And, it, and I don't mean this outside boredom. I mean this inside, mm. in my soul, sort mm. of craving something deeper, bigger, grander mm. for me. And so I... um on my yearly pilgrimage to Montreal to see my mother, I uh, went to an outdoor store and I picked up a pamphlet for a four-month leadership school in Yamnuska. Uh, at, it, it called Yamnuska in Canmore, Alberta. Okay. And I ended up quitting my job and everybody thought I was absolutely nuts because I left all these career path things mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you build them up and you stay with them, you don't leave. And it felt like the absolute right thing to do. And that particular experience to me opened up an entirely different world, mm -hmm. not just inside me, but in my mind in terms of curiosity and opportunity. Mm -hmm. I developed a sort of strength inside that we felt, you know, in the Arctic at, at, in our expedition that you can't read in a textbook. You have to go out there and you have to, you have to get dirty. You have to step outside your comfort zone and you have to brush up against the edge of who you are, you mm. know? And that's, that, that trip did that for me and my whole trajectory changed. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And how about you with school and kind of your passions and. Yeah, I think I had some great teachers and I, I loved school, but I also, uh, I like, Every child uh, or uh, when you get a little older, you have two lives. You have one life at school and then you have a very important one after. So I think I, I explored every single minute after after school. But yes, just being at school and achieving goals also there mm -hmm. was important to me. But I think when I got older and had the opportunity to do exploration like I did, seeing other culture, seeing other parts of the world, see how people were living, and also see wildlife that I'd never seen before, see how everything were connected. That took me further up north uh, to close to the North Pole, up to Svalbard, and to explore what was happening up there and why the Arctic is so important for the rest of the world, for us mm -hmm. down here in Saudi Arabia just now. Yeah. So, uh, no, I think education is is important, but as you say, it has to be uh, formed in a way that it, it's... Um, possible for every kid to come along yeah. either if it's a outside school or if it's a, uh, whichever shape that takes it's yeah. nothing um it shouldn't be in a very limited square box yeah and it's kind of that idea of activating passions through strengths yes and schools about deficits and filling the deficits you know and identifying what's wrong or where students are lacking and then of course, we have to make sure that we address deficits, but, you know, the work around positive psychology, Dr. Martin Seligman, uh, positive psychology from uh, Penn State suggests that we need to be strengths focused. 
And it's only when we're strengths focused do we really tap into passions and curiosity and drive and wonder and awe and all of these amazing things that lead to the work, for example, that the both of you are doing to make a difference in the world. And if I could go back and talk to your elementary school teachers, I could project back in time to, let's say, grade four or five. And I could talk to your elementary school teachers and say, and tell them the wonderful things you're going to do in the future and how you're going to change the world. Would they be shocked or would they say, absolutely, doesn't surprise us that the both of them went on to do such amazing work in the world? Oh, boy, that's a toughie. <laughs> uh, I could tell you what my high school teachers would say <laughs> because I'm, I'm actually still in touch with them. Um, elementary school, how old am I in elementary school? I forget. 10, 11. Okay. Um, well, they would probably not be surprised because, um, when I was 10, for some reason, I wanted to go to the moon. That was my first dream. Awesome. I want, I want up. (laughs) And I actually, um, mentioned that to my teacher. I can't remember her name. And she said, write a letter to NASA. So I wrote a letter and I actually got a letter back. It was a, (laughs) it was a form letter. And it basically said, uh, stay in school, <laughs> yeah. and maybe someday we, we, we will send a civilian in space. Um, and the message, it's, it sticks with you, eh, that, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, because it's a private, it's a, it's a very private message. That but you, you feel listened to and heard and, yeah, and recognized. Absolutely. Yeah. That and that you, you actually expressed your dream. Most of us keep them hidden. Mm-hmm. And then we grow older, and they become these unrequited things that nag at us, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden... You have layers upon layers of unrequited dreams, and it, it's not how we're meant to live our lives. Absolutely, you yeah. know. And so, I really resonate with what you say around how important it is to find those strengths and and find a way to live them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very exciting right now, and I won't let the cat out of the bag. But um, Hila and I are working with a private school in Montreal right now, mm-hmm. um, in the hopes of developing um, as part of curriculum in Quebec and then rolling it out federally. Curriculum that includes a community si- citizen science. Yeah. You know, what Powerful. if we created stewards out there and the kids at an early age that build those leadership qualities you talk about, that build mm-hmm. on the strengths and not sort of deal with the voids? Mm-hmm. So I hope we're going to be part of a, a wave of uh, what's next in education. Yeah, so great. I recently, are you familiar with Daniel Pink? Uh, Daniel Pink's work, he's a, a five time best selling author. Uh, I just had him on a couple weeks ago, the podcast, and his latest book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards uh, Moves Us Forward. And through his research, he's done a, a number of research studies universally around the world, and that there are four common regrets that humans experience. And one of the regrets is called boldness regrets, where I didn't take the chance or the risk that I should have. And as you say, you know, uh, it's so important to take these risks so that when we project forward and we're looking backwards, we have no regrets because we've taken the risks that we were passionate about, right? And how about you? You mean my teacher? Yeah. Yes. Well, I still actually have my note uh, to my parents from her. She was a loving, strict teacher. And she said, oh, well, Hilda, she's... Um, She's a little noisy. She's, she talks a lot, <laughs> but she has great potential. Yeah. So I think she saw the strength in me uh, back then. And I think also that growing up as the youngest gave me a lot of strength mm-hmm. and the values I got from my parents and right. my 
my community and my friends. And that was within me and yeah. has kind of shaped me and my my decisions and my choices growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we were to jump forward now into um, how you made history, and that's an amazing story. So your work has been featured in Wired Magazine and Newsweek. So can you tell the listeners about how you first made history and what that work project was all about? And Maybe one of you can answer that, and then the other can answer what the process was like preparing for the journey itself. Mm. Um, I can start off okay. with, um, so moving up to Svalbard meant that I was um, given the opportunity to travel around on Svalbard and see this beautiful area. And ever since I came there back in 1995, I wanted to do an overwintering. I read about the big explorers before me, mm-hmm. also female explorers that were on Trapper's Hut. And the the reason for why, why they were there for a f- almost a full year was to, to sort of um, collect resources, uh, shoot animals like polar bears and, and, and seals and, and, uh, and uh, foxes around, uh, around the hut and to gain a lot of money when, when they came back from that. So I really wanted to do not that, but to stay in a trapper's cabin. And I read about those explorers that had done this before us. Um, so we're talking 78 degrees north latitude, right? Yes, <laughs> okay. close to the North Pole. <clears throat> yeah. So um, I think when you're thinking about how that all uh, came across, I think both Sunova and I had, without knowing, um, been preparing for this kind of huge expedition, like staying out so remote our whole lives. Mm. So um, we, um, my husband and myself has access to a trapper's cabin far, far out in the extreme remoteness. Um, and um, so the dream was to do an full overwinter, stay a f- almost a full year, nine months was the plan. And then without any men, which is then the historic part of it, mm-hmm. um, being able to survive, take care of ourselves and and do some, um, fulfill our goals by being there. And maybe you can tell them a little bit about that. So no. Well, I'll just uh, share a little bit about that journey to get there because um, the dream of, a, of, of an overwintering was, was her. <laughs> uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I have done some bad, some, pretty serious things in my life, but um, spending three months in the dark was not on the dream list. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just be clear. Um, I, um, I, you know, to go backwards, when I was 30, I was part of the first team of women that skied to the South Pole. And that was a slog that was that was going from point A to point B, uh, hauling a 100 kilo sled, each of us. And it was my first foray into my inner darkness. If, if, if I may say it like that, and just this world of white and nothingness, a sensory deprivation elevated. And I've had different careers along the path of my life. And the one that I had uh, when I met Hille, I was head of global sales for a polar operator. And I vowed, and be careful what we vow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I was never going to leave that job because I was really happy at it. And it meant that I could travel a little bit, but not a lot. And I stayed at home and had a good life. And I met her at a travel conference, and um, then we went out and had soup uh, in Oslo because my father was living in Norway at the time. And um, 
then she drops the idea of this this overwintering because I, you know, the expedition and the adventure part of it was calling her deeply, mm-hmm. and that's the danger for me. Is you know, once adventure creeps into your veins, it never leaves you if yeah. you keep giving it a little life. Just give it a little life, and it stays fresh, right? Yeah. And so I'd always kept that alive just by being in the expedition cruise industry. And so when we met, she planted the seed for that. And I thought, well, maybe three months. And she knew full well that no (laughs) ship was coming to get me after three months. (laughs) So (laughs) no helicopter, no ship, nobody. So um, then it started developing. And we realized together that, wow, we have this place called Bumsabu, which means Little Bear Hut, this historic cabin, which you'll never find on Airbnb. <laughs> um, and it it could be a base camp and a platform for a much bigger thing that we both burn for. And that is both educating youth around the world around a topic, which is climate change. and um, As citizen scientists. As citizen mm-hmm. scientists. Yeah. So that's that was the second piece, was collecting data for researchers studying science as citizen scientists and build story around it. So those... The education piece and the citizen science were our two main objectives. And we were very successful. It was planned to be nine months. COVID happened. And then it was 19. So that was the actual time spent was from August 2019 to May 2020? Um, May 2021. Oh, okay. 19 months. Oh, it ended up, as Sinwa said, just because... We were planning oh, actually, to, yeah. come, to come home yeah. in May 2020, okay. but we're... COVID happened and there were no ships. And we had this full life there. I mean, we, we had a tiny hut, but we had a lot of Very equipment. safe from COVID. <laughs> Very safe from, <laughs> from COVID. And no one could come and, well, they could actually, we could find a way to, to move ourselves from the hut and back to the community. But then we would leave everything behind. Mm-hmm. And with the wildlife around, like polar bears, that's a no-go. We we couldn't leave that there. So we went home for a few days. It was a huge expedition just getting ourselves back to Eight the community. with a snowmobile. To with get Edra, oh, wow. the dog, and, and the two of us. And then resupply a little bit. But then it ended up to be then... The full summer, uh, and we didn't have any resupply until late July. We came home in September after 12 months. Mm-hmm. We did a, f- a full resupply then for a couple of months, and then we had another overwinter at Bomsebu, So, What did you learn most about yourselves during that time? And when you were talking about going to the South Pole, when you said the inner darkness, is that because there's so much time to think? There's way too much time to right. think. Right. You're you're skiing single file, twelve hours a day, mm-hmm. um, and you just you know this is very different from us being at Bumsabu because we're in one location. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still this. It, we all have this, possess this. Uh, we all struggle with different things, and it's very interesting how easy it is for us to distract ourselves. Uh, we have we have so many ways today to to yeah. really distract ourselves. And when you pull away that distraction, you're left with your thoughts and Mm -hmm. you're left with maybe the regrets that you spoke about earlier, you know, and you're left with, um, you know, maybe the things that you would like to do that you dream about doing and and you think about people, you hold space for others. Um, So you live in your mind and you live in your heart. Mm -hmm. And so you're cracked open um, by being in the wilderness uh, on either an expedition to a summit somewhere across an ice cap or as we did for, we spent close to 15,000 hours together. 
Wow. And so you can bet that we got to know each other <laughs> yeah. and we got to know ourselves too and, yeah. and who we thought we were and who we be, who we became and who we're becoming. We're still evolving, um, curiosity being the key ingredient there. Yeah. Did you have, you know, the Navy SEALs when, when somebody can't hack the training anymore, they have to crawl, you know, head coward to the bell and ring the bell and that's the, the tap out sign. You know, UFC, when you're grappling with an opponent, the tap out is, it's over, it's done. Did you talk about, you know, using that as a metaphor, did you have some kind of um, way that you were going to communicate if it was too much and you had to pull the shoot or pull the plug on it, what that would look like? Did you plan that ahead of time or? No, but you know, when when you say that, you go ahead. Uh, no, uh, well, just and also to paint a picture for the for the listeners here, this hut is twenty square meters. It's like a small Starbucks. It's even less than here. Okay. This, we're sitting in a small studio. Um, twenty square meters is like a little garage, yeah, and not so Saudi Arabia garage. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a small, as garage. Melissa says, smaller than <laughs> Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's no running water. It's no electricity. It's no connectivity. It's not some you can't use your phone. Uh, we had a pelicase with a satellite dish that we could download emails once a day and also upload them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this we were completely by ourselves with our thoughts, with no f- outside distractions uh, beside the natural world around us. So it was just the two of us. But mm-hmm. we had tools. We had a few tools before we went in there, um, like uh, using... Uh, double clicking like if i thought sunwa said something or i heard her saying something and i i made my assumptions or i i I thought she this is what she's saying before i went down to the rabbit hole down in the rabbit hole double click ask again love it yeah Yeah. What, what did you mean by that can you can you explain because then she was aware of me maybe um this Deterp- din- what's the word for that interpretation yes that i missed out of something and or yeah. i thought she said something else she had the opportunity to say it again um and and also me instead of um jumping to conclusion ask her what did you mean by this and we had a lot of routines uh, physical routines we were very physical outside with chopping wood finding snow and wa- uh, ice for water carrying a lot uh, of yeah logs and 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 wood burning uh, shoveling deep snow i saw some videos of that yes yeah. that too and walking etra we trained every day so we had a lot of tools and and gratitude is probably the most powerful tool that we had looking each other in the eye and said thank you for that contribution it could be a small thing we did that many times during the day and that was so powerful for me because that if i had gone a little bit inside of myself uh, felt a little i don't know um sad or maybe attacked or (laughs) by her it was very opening and and, uh, comforting to look her in the eye and say thank you and really mean that so that it's something everyone should try. It's yeah, really life lessons, so you know, and powerful. going back to Martin Seligman's work, um, Dr. Martin Seligman and positive psychology and what you talk about gratitude. He has based so much of his work around what's called the three W's, what went well, and how we're programmed to look at what's not working. 
And this is based on evolution, right? We just, to protect ourselves, we're always going to look at what's not working. But when you flip the paradigm and you start showing deep gratitude, especially for people in your life and, and the things they do for you, and as you say, that idea of double-clicking is really empathic listening, promoting empathic listening and such important strategies, conflict resolution and and to respect and honor one another and, and, and what's possible. And I would venture to say that had you not had those tools and skills, it would not have been possible. Mm, that's mm. for sure. Yes, absolutely. There is, uh, there are um, three universities that were studying us, University of Manchester, the University of Bergen, and the University of Minnesota, and they're all connected to NASA. Uh, we're going to be sending a lot more people up up to space. Um, and so we are perfect subjects to sort of look at and evaluate how in the world did you cope in isolation for such an extended period of time under real adverse conditions, yeah. uh, to be honest. Yeah. And I think, you know, Hilda, when you were just sharing right now, I'm just, I was thinking about um, how as a baseline, like we're two smart, healthy women, right? We're not out there to stab each other in the back and be first. I think instinctually we all have those attributes a little bit, a very competitive nature. Would, we wouldn't get to where we are today if we didn't have that. Yeah. But we came together in a very respectful place. We came together with a shared set of values. Um, even though some of them were not the same, the, the core ones were aligned. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we identified those before we went into the cabin. It's like, what do you value personally, professionally, relationally? Uh, and then that was a great, a great sort of like door opener to mm -hmm. a window to Cinova from Hilda and to from to, to Hilda from Cinova. It was very powerful. And then you take that and you throw these two pretty passionate lit women into <laughs> into the middle of nowhere, <laughs> um, and you, the ship sails off with a hundred people on board, and they're waving white flags at us and <laughs> crying. Bye bye. Yeah. bye, -bye. They left us alone. Um, and all of a sudden, we're there living the adventure truly of a lifetime again, but doing it for a purpose that is so far greater than us and that will give us lessons that transcend any objective we could have outlined as goal number one or two. Um, or disciplined boundary lines, too. You right. Know, it's not just about science, but you, your work transcends so many disciplines. Absolutely. And we, we, I think we did so well together because we had a willingness to work it out. Mm -hmm. you know, every day. And sometimes we very rarely did we go to bed um, and we left, you know, each other in, in our respective places where we didn't work it out, but we did in the morning, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And it was so important because this is a small room that we're in right now. You feel things mm -hmm. and you could feel tension and energy in our space. And we wanted it to be a loving space it, we're both women. We care about little lights. We care about, you know, having decorations on the wall. And we care about having a space that's that's nurturing. And that's not just about getting the job done. Mm -hmm. And so all of those different things, we were complementing each other in figuring out what that space would look like. And it's, it's, it's sort of a dance that you do. Mm -hmm. If we worked out, we didn't work out alone. We worked out together because because of space. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a way of navigating, you know, something that I'm sure everybody experienced during COVID, which is how to live on top of each other in a small space and have it be 
you know, at the end of the day, uh, a good experience. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. when, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I wanted to add to that because that's, that's so true, Sunwa. And I, I also think that we became really good at celebrating the small stuff around us. We celebrated dinner every day and, and also just the tiny little things. And if we had one carrot left, that was the highlight of the day. Mm. So we had little, but we never felt richer in a mm. way. Um, and we had each other. And of course, we were not always aligned. We had our arguments and tears and all that. But uh, just having the, the, the little book of gratefulness, three things every day that we mm -hmm. were grateful for, and also saying thank you every single day and celebration was a um, big part of. And, and this, as Sunwa said, this became so much bigger than us. Yeah. This was not about us. It was never a time where we thought we should quit. Never. Yeah. Because we had a big purpose and we had a, yeah, we had. It's, it's kind of that idea of doubling down on the greater purpose. And as you say, knowing that it's not about yourself and doubling down on your greater purpose allows you to um, look at your work and your relationship and everything you had done through multiple different lenses. Right. And I think that's evident in everything you're saying. And I wanted to ask you a question about fear because, um, I talked about Tracy Edwards, who, uh, is such an amazing human herself with what she accomplished as the first female skipper of an all female crew that travel or that sailed around the world in this, uh, race. It took nine or 10 months, 33,000 nautical miles. They ended up, uh, sailing from the tip of South America to Australia through the, um, the Southern Ocean. And you're talking like minus 20 degrees. As you leave the tip of South America, the waves are, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 feet. Their video footage is shocking. Um, at one point, Tracy, um, b before the journey began, she wanted to make sure she had a female physician on board. Um, which ended up um, in, in these huge waves, there was another team that lost two men overboard. So through the radio, uh, Tracy's physician on board was able to, they lost one of the men, but was able to give instructions and directions and medical advice to save the other person's life. And this is in the middle of 50 and 60 foot waves. Wow. So when you talk about fear, I wanted to know how she dealt with fear. And she said, it just comes in literally metaphorically little waves. You accept one big wave. It wasn't like suddenly a 70 foot waves. You build your tolerance to fear. So in your work, um, living up there, you know, it's dangerous. Um, what role did fear play and how did you deal with it? And were there any particularly scary moments that you can share? Well, I, I would say that fear resided within us every single, uh, day. Um, and the reality of uh, our location and the fact that we were so isolated meant that we were, we had to be self-contained and had to be self-sufficient. Uh, that meant from food to your mental tenacity, to your physical abilities, to injuries, um, to, you know, your disconnectedness from family and friends and the outside world uh, and what that spins in you. Um, and also the fact that we are surrounded by polar bears. And let's just face it, <laughs> you, you don't want to meet a polar bear on foot. Um, and so we had to we had to always be mindful of where we were 
Uh, and it didn't take us long. Um, well, I can speak for myself on that one. I'm not sure about you. It didn't take me that long to, to get rooted in the fact that I was in an, in another world mm-hmm. and, and I had to pay attention to, to my fear, to my feelings and my thoughts, because they would set the course for the day. Usually they do. Yeah. Um, and let that not take over, but sort of let it sort of wash over me and think about it and rationalize with it. Is this real or imagined? And, um, you know, you, you, you deal with it psychologically. Um, I think I was afraid. Knowing the difference between real and perceived is huge. Huge. Such a skill. Huge. Um, I think that I was afraid mostly in the dark. And I've had other experiences where I was kayaking across to an island in, in Mexico and we had to do the crossing in the dark. And I, I was paddling out of fear and we ended up, I told my friend Jeff, I said, we have to turn around because I'm not making any progress and um, you have to leave early because of the winds in the afternoon. So we turned around and went back and then started again the next day. But I almost needed to have the experience of the fear and understand that I, there was nothing for me to be afraid of to turn around and go back and try it again. Mm. And so for me up in the Arctic for 19 months with Hilda and, and 104 polar bear encounters. Um, they're so know, cute. They're so cute. <laughs> Cuddly. Yes, they are. <laughs> it was just meeting a bear in the dark, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and I had one day where I, I lost it. I just, um, I probably had a bad dream and I was off. I just mm. physically, emotionally off. And we walk several times a day with Etra, our, our Malamute, who I miss so much. Mm. Um, and this day we didn't even venture very far from the cabin where I thought for sure I had lost the satellite phone, which I thought I had tucked in you know, my left breast pocket, when in fact, because I have 16 pockets on my, you know, mm-hmm. on my, my snowmobile suit, which we often wore, um, it was the wrong pocket. And in the dark, and the polar bears and losing a phone and all the what ifs you spin out of control mm. very quickly. And so, um, thank God, a voice of reason, a calm one. Um, she just points the <laughs> headlamp at me and says, are you sure it was in there? I said, I'm positive. And she looks around with the headlamp, looking at pockets I can't see, and finds it in the other pocket. <laughs> but it's a, it's a strange thing. You almost just need to, like, you need to just express it. Just let the fear find a way out the door and then close that door and take a deep breath and move on. Mm-hmm. What about scary moments? Did you have like you say 104 encounters? Yes. Like um, from how far? What was your closest? At, at the doorstep. Oh, yeah, wow. closer than you and I. Oh yeah. wow. A meter? Less than that. Half yeah. a meter. Se- 70 centimeters is because the door is the door blade is 70 centimeters. That's why we know he was like there. 550 kilos male wow. um but yes um i i have a lot of experience f- from up in the arctic i've been living there for 28 years soon now um so but uh and i have a lot of polar bear encounters i've been at the trapper's cabin before uh, for a period of time but not in this context at all but yes i i um i was scared too um my way of handling all that is to well my knowledge as i said i think we both have been um 
preparing for this uh, expedition our whole life without knowing. But my, I think my background up there uh, helped me a lot. But for me, it's all about um, the skills that I've uh, developed and also preparation, being prepared for all. Uh, you could you could easily call it um, worst case scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, polar bears also scares me during the dark season. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and we had great routines. I was very proud of Sunwa. She she handled this very well, both the darkness and and the polar bear, and that even helped my fear because if she had been more irrational or had a lot more fear that will also give me a lot of fear because I have a lot of experience with the polar bears and now how uh, dangerous that can be and how fast they are and how curious and cute they look but (laughs) that can easily turn out to be uh, a fatal um, encounter so being prepared and and the weather also scared me a lot. We had to, yeah. I was just going to interject really, yeah. and say right now that I have a memory, a very distinct one of how afraid you were um, when we were locked. We inside. had a very we had an anomaly. Well, that too. I yeah. forgot about that. That was very scary. But we had a um, like the worst hurricane winds up there, um, and we had a friend of ours who works for the Weather Network sent share that that was a very, very, like a random event, extreme up there. And um, he wanted to tie down the roof. And I said, I mean, well, this went back and forth a little bit. And then she just went outside and started tying down the roof. And I went out and joined her. That's how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is with very uh, solid straps. Mm. And uh, I don't know what you call this. It's a... Uh, um, yeah, it's it's like extremely steel belts, yeah, steel almost. belt, and it's really solid, and it's it's uh, attached to the frozen ground, so yeah. it's it helps. But it falls along the same lines as you don't want to meet a polar bear on foot, and you don't want to lose your roof in a storm. No, you don't. Not let's, up there, especially honest. not up there. Yeah. <laughs> right. A hurricane and the roof is off. Then and also the preparation we had for all that in case that's happen. That if that happens, we have something attached to the wall. We had our snowmobile suit. We had the survival gear. We had the belt. Nothing that will take off with the, right. together with the roof. It yeah. will stay there attached to the wall. Yeah. And also have a survival kit underneath our beds. Yeah. So, yeah, we had also being out on the on the water, um, ice cold water during the dark season before the, the formation of the ice. We collected yeah. data and just have everything uh, worked out in your head and yeah. mind. What if before we, we went out there? We had no one to, to call. No one would be there within the next two hours. Right. So it was just the two of us. Yeah. So those plans are huge, right? Yeah. And I want to segue into WEP. Um, I want to read you the just not the whole mission of WEP, but just a couple parts. And then um, I have a question to ask you about that and, and what you're going to present and the work you're going to do here um, over the next week. So uh, about the theme. Uh, so the theme is uh, On the Edge. And it says WEP 2023 we'll look at knowledge transformation through the lens of the edge, the cusp of discovery, where the bold take risks to push frontiers to expand understanding, to change the world through research. Edge will seek out the risk takers across a broad spectrum, not just interdisciplinary science pioneers, but the boundary breakers, the policy makers that enable, the communicators that explain the unexplainable. 
Edge will ask how they went to the Edge and beyond, and how did they share their discovery with the world. Edge will encourage a radical assessment of how we break the borders of understanding collectively and individually. As scientists, artists, explorers, volunteers, and humans, to understand how we ignite our individual confidence to step into the unknown and the outcomes of the transformative journey on ourselves and the world around us. Fits so perfectly with your work and why you're here. Um, But based on the mission of WEP 2023, can you tell us how your work fits this theme so well? and what it is you are here to share with the audience. So maybe one of you can answer that. And then the other one can answer, uh, what is it that you want the audience, anybody who hears you speak, including the listeners of this show, what is it that you want them to be inspired to think about or take action on? Yeah, for preference. Okay, I can start the beginning. Um, Well, first, we owe a huge um, debt of gratitude to Melissa Manuel for um, really finding us through some media out there while we were still up at Bumsaboo. Um, You know, we are not scientists. Uh, We are not in academia. Uh, We are two ordinary, extraordinary women, um, I think, who who represent um, what I would like to consider the the average person out there, maybe the masses. we we have a lot to bring to the plate in terms of trying to elevate our understanding of what the science is teaching us through the lens of a citizen. Um, I can't understand the abstracts that are the research papers share. They're they're long. They're um, I can I can read I can understand the abstracts, but the the research papers are often so lengthy and so detailed that it's very difficult to follow threads and understand how does this relate to me. Mm-hmm. And so um, we fall into the category of wanting to be the true bridge builders between science and the general public's understanding of what is the science informing us of? Because we're living in 2023 and we are in deep trouble. Uh, we know this uh, cerebrally. Um, some of us know it spiritually. Some of us know it um, emotionally, physically. We're feeling it with our feet in the water. And yet there's a sense of apathy out there and, the, and there's a distribution of um, resources uh, that are being allocated to the things that aren't fixing the problems. And so um, that's, where, that's where we come in. We really believe that we have an opportunity to actually light a fire under every single person's, um, you know, pants, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> that we meet by simply sharing with them how powerful the individual is in affecting change in our world. Mm -hmm. It's not going to start with a government. It's not going to start with looking for that hero out there or that leader that's going to change the world anymore. We're beyond that. You know, we're living in a time where, where we really need every single person to understand that it's all hands on deck and that every single person has a very powerful role to play in that. You know, we are, we are a global, um, uh, community of citizens and yet we're, we're, we're not treating each other with the, with equal dignity and respect in a way that we all deserve. So, uh, I personally feel, and, and Hila does how, what a privilege it is to, to be invited here to Koust for, for Edge, because Edge for us is how we've been living our lives. Um, and a lot of people don't have that luxury. So 
we're going to take them up to the place where we found our edge, where, you know, if you're not living on the edge, you're quite frankly taking up too much space. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's very true. So, mm. um, we would like to simply be a mirror, um, through which other people can hopefully see their own potential. And maybe if they haven't tapped into their own, you know, infinite, uh, wealth of resources to figure out how to be part of the solution, then, then maybe we can inspire them to do that. Yeah. Beautiful message. Yes. Uh, I think we really have to change the narrative. We are always talking about what we are, we have to stop doing. We should start to talk about what we can start doing and mm -hmm. how we can create a better world for all of us. And also this is man-made. Um, and we're always talking about footprints. Why don't we start talking about handprints, what we can create together and how powerful we are collectively as individuals. And we are absolutely the ones that are going to, we need to fix it. And we have the tools to do that. We have the knowledge. And if not, we need to spread that knowledge to everyone else. And we need to make communities around being not only part of the problem, as we all are, but being part of the solutions. And it's so much fun. Being a citizen scientist is a lot of fun. And you mm -hmm. really feel the purpose and you feel the need of making this contribution. And this week, um, can you just do a, a briefly do an overview of um, your presentations? So you're, you're going to be doing a couple talks, and are you doing breakout workshops, or just share with the listeners what your what your plan is there? We have a keynote um, talk tomorrow at noon, and then we will have some breakout some breakout sessions where we'll have some informal um, Q and A's. And we will okay. have book signing as well. well. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. And uh, the book, before we get into the last part of the podcast, um, just share the, the name. Well, I have it here, but um, yeah, just share the name of the book and uh, join hearts. Uh, no, sorry, that's not it. Yeah, just share the name of the book for it's, the audience and where they can find it. Absolutely. It's called Hearts in the Ice, and it's available on Amazon. Okay, and on your website, you also have Hearts in the Ice, uh, a resource page with great factual information. I saw that. That's really useful for um, the educators out there listening uh, to use as a tool for student learning as well. Yeah, we also have a platform called Exploring by the City of Your Pants. They are our educational platform, and under there you can find Hearts in the Ice and all the curriculum for all the topics, because we have been having... Um, school calls uh, and only from Bamsebu through this satellite dish that we had in a pelicase, we connected with 100,000 kids oh, wow. through our 19 month. And we had experts uh, on all different topics. We, the last call we had back in 2021 was with Jane Goodall and we had 7,300 oh, wow. kids sign on that, uh, that school call. Oh, that's amazing. So you'll be doing that in the future as well, those types of calls? Absolutely. And Somebody considered us to be quote unquote uniquely placed specialists up at uh, up in Svalbard for 19 months, and uh, we have come to discover and learn through through being up there that that yes we were for those 19 months, but the real uniquely placed specialists are the indigenous populations around the world, and so our next project is in the Canadian Arctic, whereby we will actually 
go in there to Cambridge Bay, Nunavut, um, to support the elders in the community with knowledge transfer to the youth, oh, uh, learning how to survive with how to build the tools. Um, it won't be us doing the actual physical work. We'll be there to document and support it through some funding and some grants we've received. So we continually look for support for that kind of thing because we're hoping it's a pilot that we can roll out across other Arctic communities. When will that be? That will be this coming autumn. We're starting off um, in September, October, and uh, we're going to use that uh, knowledge uh, and also that um, educational transformation from the elders to the young people uh, as context or content in our school calls and in our um, outreach uh, around climate change, because this is people that has lived off the land 100%. And without us, uh, meaning that everyone should li live in teepee tents or igloos, uh, but um, we are taking far too much um, and uh, just learn how, how fun and how enriching it could be to live with less so it's going to be really interesting for us and hopefully to the rest of the world. Awesome. So just to finish off, can you let the listeners know where they can find your work and how they can get in touch with you? And I have a couple more questions after that. Well, we would love it if everybody went to our website, heartsintheice.com, and signed up for our newsletter. Okay. We send updates through the newsletter. We write a blog roughly uh, once a month. Um, and we have our Instagram and Facebook feeds that are live on the website, as well as events. Uh, there's an events page, and you click on that. They're all free, all the time. And uh, a link to sign up for those is on there. And the next, uh, which is very exciting, event that's coming up is the 24th of January, live from Antarctica. Okay, so are you, um, you're setting off from? Ushuaia. Okay. Uh, the 19th of January. Uh, on board a Hurtigruten ship called MS Fritjof Nansen, and we're the godmothers of that ship, so we will be sailing with her for the first time and be educators and keynote speakers and citizen scientists on board that ship for 11 days. And that's live, so I can put the link in the show notes. Perfect. Absolutely. Oh, awesome. And, uh, okay, so any parting uh Last words, you, you, anything you want to share with the listeners before we finish off? I just want to share what a treat this has been. And um, just you sharing a little bit about the vision of this, this university and the campus uh, and how this model has the power to really transform and shape, you know, the younger generations. Um, so I feel extremely um, privileged to be here and I can't wait to actually um, meet, meet more people tomorrow. So thank you yeah. for hosting. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. It's been a great pleasure. Yeah, and my friend Jorge Rodriguez, do you want to finish off with anything? Or are you good? <laughs> I'm I'm good. I I'm I'm just in awe of uh, the things that you guys have done, and uh, I I'm very thankful to be a part of this. So I had my mic off for the for the duration because I just wanted to sit and listen. <laughs> but I really appreciate you guys uh, spending some time with us. Thank you. So, okay, well, we're going to close it off. Uh, thank you so much for your time and energy. And, and when you think about um, fulfillment in life and purpose and meaning, you are embodying what that means. And you're an inspiration to so many uh, boys and girls around the world and teachers and, and leaders. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Okay, everybody, thank you very much. I'm going to let you say your full names, okay, so I don't get them wrong. Uh, thank you to... Sunivas Sorby. Or Hilde Folenström. I wouldn't have been able to do that, but <laughs> no. thank you so much for the both of you. And uh, thank everybody, you. thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Go make some magic. Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily.